these people in New York who got involved and they were very aware of what was happening in Africa and in China and particularly in China and China had of course the barefoot doctors program which was a, a fundamental part of their bringing healthcare to the rural poor in China and it was very effective and it was used as part of uh, Maoist the Chinese Communist Party's medical diplomacy where they exported medical resources abroad particularly to Africa Hello, and welcome to this first Community Voices episode of Geological. Community Voices is an evolution of the Geological Audio Journal. The Audio Journal was conceived as a way to bring you guest interviewers, along with some individual practitioners who wanted to share something helpful of their clinical experience, along with the occasional commentary that we think you'll find helpful in your clinical work. In the past, we released 8 to 10 individual contributions once a quarter, and while that kind of publishing works quite well for a paper journal, it rather goes against the flow of a podcast, which drips out conversations one by one over a period of time. So we are keeping the idea of connecting the voices of our community and love being able to offer you an opportunity to hear other interviewers and perspectives beyond that which you'll hear from me and my guests. So with that in mind, I'm delighted to share with you a conversation between Beth Summers and Rachel Pagonis on acupuncture as revolution. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine, and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created 
are industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you are helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. It's a look at an early stream of acupuncture that was adopted and used here in the West, and it's a history of which you might not have been aware. It involves the Black Panthers and Young Lords and their work in building community resources and how all of that connects with the groundbreaking addiction treatment work done at the Lincoln Hospital in New York City, along with some of the other influences that have helped to shape acupuncture as we know it today in the West. Let's listen into this grassroots effort on community organization, self-care, and acupuncture. Rachel, it is great to meet you and to finally start a discussion about the book that you have just contributed. I'm Beth Summers. I'm in Boston. Rachel Pagonis is in the UK. She's an acupuncturist, an author, an educator, and former chair of the Transitional Doctoral Program at Pacific College of Health and uh, Science. And to get started, Rachel, if, if you would just give us kind of a general overview of your book, and then we'll go into more depths about certain aspects of it. It's a really groundbreaking book, and I uh, am very grateful you have written it. Oh, thanks, Beth. Well, it's a real pleasure to meet you too, actually. I will come back sometime and I will interview you about your life. But for now, about the book, yeah, so it is a topic that actually is something very pertinent to people in acupuncture today. And I think also to people in the integrative health movement, it's a story that is beginning to come out, uh, particularly since the murder of George Floyd, because people want to know how are we engaging in racism? How are we engaging in, how have we been engaging in Orientalism? How have we written history in such a way that it excludes people who were very significant to the history of acupuncture and Chinese medicine in North America. And 
So bits and bobs of this story have been coming out. Uh, some people know more of it than others. Some people know little bits of things accurately or inaccurately. And I came across the story really haphazardly because I was being interviewed for a research fellowship, which I didn't get, by the way, but I was being interviewed for this research fellowship. And the person who was interviewing me mentioned that she had been a student at this really radical acupuncture college in the early 1980s called First World Acupuncture. And she talked about it a little bit. And I just said, tell me more, tell me more. We were supposed to be talking about my qualifications, but I was going, tell me more about this. And when I hung up the phone, I had this feeling, and it wasn't a pledge I made to myself or anything. It was just, well, maybe I won't get this fellowship, but what will come out of this whole thing is that I'm going to write a book about this. And lo and behold, that's what happened. And the story is the history of what I call acupuncture's revolution, acupuncture used as a means of social and political revolution in the United States, beginning around 1970 in New York City, in the South Bronx of New York, actually. And a lot of people in acupuncture, maybe integrated medicine, perhaps radical doctors have heard about Lincoln Detox Program at Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx. And that's very much associated with Dr. Michael Smith, who was a psychiatrist who really has disseminated, promoted NADA to the world. And NADA is a technique of auricular acupuncture, acupuncture in the ear to treat addiction. And it began as a means to treat heroin addiction and methadone addiction. And so people in acupuncture circles know Dr. Michael Smith is the architect of NADA, and he also was behind, there's an organization, National Acupuncture Detoxification Association, that promotes also and disseminates the use of NADA. And Dr. Michael Smith died, actually, just before I started, right when I was starting to work on this mm -hmm. book. And I went to his memorial in New York City at the Society for Ethical Culture, and met quite a lot of people who had not mm -hmm. been together in decades going back to the 1970s and these really radical times. And I will add that we also live in extremely trying times and in some ways radical times. And, and while that memorial was taking place, it was hard to get to because there was a huge demonstration taking place on the streets of New York, as well as other places to protest the, the shootings, the high school shootings gosh, I can't remember now the name in Florida. I can't remember the name of the high school, but that was so, the work continues. So just to go back to the book, um, this was the beginning of revolutionary acupuncture. And the way I see it, this is my thesis, there have been really three revolutionary acupuncture movements in the United States. Uh, two of them, in that, so that one, well, I'll say two of them in the 1970s to early 1980s, and then one that is taking place today, primarily with the People's Organization of Community Acupuncture, or POCA. And so, of course, this is a different time, a different era, and they do it in a different way, but it is equally a, a radically different way of seeing and using acupuncture. And I sort of tie all of these movements together, and that's what the book is about. Well, in 1970, this was 
in the United States anyway, there weren't any other schools where people could learn acupuncture at that time. There, I think there was a school in Canada, but the, the BANA program and First World um, were some of the initial schools where people could learn acupuncture. And, you know, at this point in time, it, it seems hard to imagine that, you know, 50 some years ago, you couldn't necessarily learn acupuncture in this country. You had to go somewhere else. But, um, you know, certainly the folks at Lincoln and Banna started a tremendous trend and uh, have given us a legacy to continue. Yeah. And you've mentioned Banna, that's the Black Acupuncture Advisory Association of North America. And that was what, what I call the first revolutionary acupuncture movement. I call it revolutionary detox acupuncture because it began at Lincoln Hospital as a way to treat people with heroin addiction. And those people actually began their own acupuncture college, as you say, and they were allied with a father and son duo from Montreal, Oscar and Mario Wexu, who were radical in their own way. And interestingly, so a lot of the, the community that was involved in Lincoln Hospital, it began with activism by the Young Lords in particular, and some other groups, uh, the Health Revolutionary Unity Movement, or HRUM, and a group called Think Lincoln. And these people were mostly Black and Latinx Americans, and taking care of their community, which had really some terrible problems with the conditions in the South Bronx and the conditions at Lincoln Hospital. But Oscar and Mario Wexu were white guys. They were uh, French Canadians of Romanian descent, and they had a real struggle with the medical doctors in Canada. So they were very sympathetic. Mm -hmm. Mario happened to be writing a book on ear acupuncture, so it all fit in quite nicely. But they were able to provide degrees to people there in New York. But at the time, as you probably know, there was no there was no path to licensure for those people to practice mm. acupuncture legally in New York. Now, a doctor could take a short course and become a professional acupuncturist with just a, a very brief course. And some of them did. Dr. Barbara Zeller, who was also very involved with this program, and she was a white and a medical doctor and, and very sympathetic to the cause of liberation, Black liberation, Puerto Rican uh, nationalism. And she helped out because they had to have a medical doctor sort of be the front for them. But she had taken this brief course and then she went on to study with the Wexus and was really proud to be granted a degree because she was the first medical doctor they'd given a degree to because mm. they didn't like medical doctors. Uh, you know, they were very suspicious of medical doctors. Uh, the Wexus <laughs> were. And, and certainly vice versa because you know, I mean, I started studying acupuncture in the like 1977 here at the New England School of Acupuncture. And, you know, our program was maybe a year long. We had no books. I just had a few hours of clinical practice because there were no clinics, you know, and it, at this point in time, it's hard to imagine, you know, there, there wasn't not only a path to licensure, but there wasn't even licensure. So when I first graduated, we were called, I think, certified, and we had to work with a medical doctor who cleared everybody, all the patients for us to see. So things have uh, moved, <laughs> certainly. Yeah. And it's interesting because there was always this, 
tension between professionalism and I'm, I'm not quite sure if the right, I don't want to see populism, but professionalism and non-professionalism. And the way these people started the revolutionary acupuncture started using acupuncture. As you say, there were not acupuncture colleges for them. There were, there weren't acupuncture clinics for them to go to. They heard about it because most of these people were already involved in revolutionary politics. There was a lot of left-wing activism going on at the time. This was the late sixties and the early seventies. And they were engaged in things like the view known as third world Marxism, Mm-hmm. which stated that racism at home in America was a reflection of U.S. imperialism abroad. And so this, you know, treating people in racist ways at home was tantamount to what was going on in Africa, in Latin America. And of course, you had on the other side of that, you had socialist revolutions going on in Cuba, in Latin America, in Africa. And these people in New York who got involved in, they were very aware of what was happening in Africa and in China, and particularly in China. And China had, of course, the Barefoot Doctors Program, which was a a fundamental part of their bringing healthcare to the rural poor in China. And it was very effective. And it was used as part of uh, Maoist, the Chinese Communist Party's medical diplomacy, where they exported medical resources abroad, particularly to Africa, where they wanted to be involved in the the revolutions that were taking place in Africa as different African countries threw off the shackles of colonialism. And so at Lincoln Hospital, for instance, at Lincoln Detox, in the book, I have a a picture of a poster that was from a benefit concert that they held to, to raise money for an ambulance for the Zimbabwe African National Union. So they knew what was going on there. And that was a lot of how they heard about acupuncture, part, partly, and they were very inspired by the, this. Anyway, I was going back to non-professionalism, this idea of using a sort of barefoot doctors, people who are of the peasant class and just trained in these useful techniques so that they can help their own communities. And also medical doctors that the radical young doctors who were studying at Columbia, for instance, who came to work at Lincoln Hospital, they were also very inspired by this. So it it didn't really come from the where you, you well, like where I would get acupuncture today or somebody listening might get acupuncture today. Um, they were hearing about it from a completely different kind of perspective. Just going to add that, of course, the opening of U.S.-China relations by President Nixon in 1972 mm. also had a big effect because all of a sudden everybody was interested in what's going on. And all of a sudden, China went from being a real, you know, sort of a the red scare, part of the red scare, to being something that a lot of, of state department people and physicians and people within the system were suddenly very enthusiastic about what they were doing with their healthcare system. And, and that's about the same time when endorphins were isolated. And, you know, of course, endorphins existed for millennia. <laughs> as long as there were, you know, humanoids, but they were finally um, isolated, you know, in labs and lots of research started happening. And that's why I think we have the legacy of, we know a lot about endorphins role in acupuncture, but we don't necessarily know some other things, but I, I think it's important, you know, that you do bring out these global interconnections and, you know, certainly the folks at Lincoln and Banna were 
very aware of kind of a anti-imperialist global perspective. And um, that is something, you know, it's interesting today, some folks look at globalism and globalization in a positive light because it's about communication. And other people look at it in a very negative light in that it's about commercialism and about this, you know, the further spread and development of imperialism. So there's a yin and a yang that uh, are definitely there. Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. It's really interesting what you say about endorphins, because that was J.S. Hahn and mm. Bruce Pomerantz were doing some of the real initial basic science research into acupuncture. And... And the mechanism that they were looking at was endorphins, of course, in mm-hmm. mostly in, in different kinds of rodents. I guess all of that fit together. You know, I, I don't know too much about the research on endorphins outside of acupuncture research, but that's it seems like it all fit together at that time. And it was very mm-hmm. important, this actually the what in China was called the scientization of acupuncture throughout the 20th century, although I've been told by a a researcher into Chinese medical history that scientization was a very overused term in China. It was used for absolutely everything. But also, I think the kind of exportation of the scientization of acupuncture to the West, where it wasn't acceptable really until it could fit into a scientific model. And immediately it came here, it started being studied scientifically by the West. And with enough support all the way along, for the scientific community to keep saying, yes, yeah, there's something in this. I mean, you know, probably as well, that that's not a consistently cited by all scientists or medical doctors, <laughs> but there's enough evidence out there that, that plenty of people agree. So that, that was important too. Mm-hmm. Although not, mm-hmm. I mean, the revolutionary acupuncturists, they, they would have liked to do research. They just didn't have any money or time to do research. Yeah. And there were no funders. No. You know, who were really jumping at the opportunity to, you know, let's understand this better. The first study I ever did, we got $5,000 from Pfizer. <laughs> and this was like mind blowing. <laughs> so I hope I'm not in the pocket of the drug companies, however. <laughs> well, they've got the money, so. Mm, yeah. Um, I wanted to go a little bit more into some of the 
some of the takeaway that you major lessons that you would like readers to take from your book or questions that might lead to the next steps? Well, major lessons. First of all, I would like people to know that this history exists and I would like them to know more of the complete history. I don't know if a history can ever be totally complete because every single person who was part of it would have to tell their part of the tale for it to be complete. But it is coming out more, not just through my book. There's a wonderful documentary and podcast by Mia Donovan called Dope is Death, which gives you a lot of the political side of it as well. Um, And they are certainly going around the country showing that now. Tanisha Dandridge, Dr. Tanisha Dandridge, an acupuncturist activist in California and Sacramento. She's giving CEU courses on the history. Ina Meng, who's a researcher in the Harvard PhD medical program, is doing her own research into it. So I expect more complete history will come out. But I I want people to know that uh, not just to know little bits and pieces of this, but to get a grasp of the entire history. I want them, I want, uh, and I would like particularly, I think it's an important story for clinicians in integrative medicine, as well as acupuncture and in public health also to know about this use of acupuncture and indigenous medicine, but particularly for the acupuncturists of the future. I would like them to know that when they go to study and they spend a lot of money for their degree and they are told, well, you're going to have to go find well-heeled clientele and charge them a lot of money because you have to, to earn a living and to pay off your student loans. That's very frustrating for a lot of people in acupuncture because that's not necessarily what they want to do. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a boutique acupuncture practice because I think everybody, you know, virtually everybody in acupuncture is there because they want to help other people. And I think most people in medicine, that's probably why they go into it as well. But some people would like to also blend social justice in with that, their sense of wanting to help to rebalance the imbalances of society into their practice, which entails not charging a lot of money or reaching out to people who don't have the resources to go find an acupuncturist and and get a treatment. And I want those people to know that, Mm -hmm. yes, there's a historic precedent for this. And and yes, there's organization that's still working on this and, and you can do it you can use this medicine as a way of of working towards greater social justice and creating a better world, in fact. So I I think that's very important for people to know. Yes, I I agree. And I appreciate that you highlight that. Will you talk a bit more about the development of POCA and some of their activities? Because they're certainly carrying carrying on this mantle of bringing social justice and acupuncture along. Yeah. So POCA, the People's Organization of Community Acupuncture, came from the community acupuncture movement that began with a clinic in Portland, Oregon called Working Class Acupuncture. And this was begun by Lisa Rolliter and her partner, Skip Van Meter, two licensed acupuncturists in Portland. And they had been they'd graduated from acupuncture college and and they had been trying to figure out what they wanted to do. They knew sort of what they wanted to do with acupuncture, but how to do it. They'd been working in in various public health settings, working with people with, you know, serious addiction and and problems. And 
those things would get funding and they would lose funding and they would open up and they would close down. And so they fell upon this model that they developed of community acupuncture, where you have people all sitting together in a room. Uh, nowadays, they have them lying back in a comfy reclining chair and having points needled on the extremities and, you know, not usually the trunk. People don't undress. There's a sense more of community, I guess, in there. But it's not only that. So they their model is to, to reach out to the people who are marginalized and oppressed by society and to give them the right and the opportunity to have as much acupuncture treatment as they want for whatever conditions they want, not something that has to be justified by their insurance company, not something that they have to pay a lot of money for. And so the POCO uh, website, if you're a member of POCO, they've got this blog and it's called Prick, Prod and Provoke. And I would say Lisa, who is a very prolific and very articulate writer, that's what she has been doing to the mainstream acupuncture profession in North America ever since, is pricking, prodding, provoking them about what they do and the way that they do it and the model of education. And so they began their own acupuncture college, Poca Tech, which is designed just to train more community acupuncturists. It's a, a much, much lower cost college, and it does not offer a master's degree. It offers a certificate. It's the only acupuncture college I know of in the States that, that offers a certificate rather than a degree because the degree, the way they see it, acupuncture is something that is done by ordinary people sufficiently trained in useful techniques to benefit those people they want to help, which would be everybody, anybody, and particularly people who are not respected by society. You know, they want to give them a place to, to come where they can feel respected, comfortable, honored, and have treatment for whatever they need treatment for. So, that's really what POCA is about. And it, it, it can be, you know, there's different perspectives from people within mainstream acupuncture. Some people say, yeah, that's cool. Wouldn't want to do it myself. But some people do a sort of modified community acupuncture on the side, like maybe one day a week they have opened their clinic in a community way with lower prices. But other people are really sort of offended by it. And they say, like, wow, you have to really take a vow of poverty to join that organization. Mm -hmm. Because they do. They advocate that you should, acupuncturists should be prepared to work harder for less money to make this sacrifice for what they want to do. And they do take as their inspiration, as some of their, they take, they have a, many figures, what they call ancestors of, of liberation acupuncture. Liberation acupuncture is kind of the guiding philosophy and the movement behind POCA. And some of the key figures from the revolutionary acupuncture of the 1970s, including both Dr. Michael Smith and Mutulu Shakur, who was key figure in revolutionary detox acupuncture, as well as other people who were involved in liberation theology and liberation the philosophies. So there's a lot of, um, of liberation involved mm -hmm. in, in, well, liberation acupuncture, but there's this whole, that, that idea of liberation of oppressed people was really central to the revolutionary acupunctures in the 1970s. And it's also central to POCA. It's certainly continuing the legacy of the barefoot doctors. I mean, that would be another 
contributing force that provides some foundation historically for why do this now in that way? Yeah, I think the Barefoot Doctors are kind of like Barack Obama when he was elected the first time. He could kind of be all things to all people because all these different people could see themselves in Barack Obama. And all the people I spoke to, everybody's got their own idea of what the Barefoot Doctors were and what they mean, <laughs> which isn't necessarily what the Barefoot Doctors were. But but it's this idea of they were often at the time said to be armed with one silver needle and a bunch of herbs, and they were called mm. newly emerged things. And Xiaoping Fang has written this wonderful book about them called Barefoot Doctors in Western Medicine in China. And he reveals all of these facts about the Barefoot Doctors. But they were, one of his central theses is that they really contributed to the, the spread widespread use of Western medicine, biomedicine in rural China, because uh, the people, the peasants had not had access to it before. And once the barefoot doctors started treating them with antibiotics and, and using Western medical techniques, those things work faster than Chinese herbs. And a lot of people came to prefer that. So they did use acupuncture and they did use herbal medicine. But a funny thing is some of them said uh, to Xiaoping Fang that it's harder we prefer to use the biomedical techniques because it takes more education and it's harder to learn the Chinese medicine to do a pulse mm. diagnosis, for instance. You need more education to do that than these biomedical techniques we've been trained to do. So I thought that was really interesting. But the barefoot doctors, they were, they were part of a formal medical system in China. And they were also part of the peasant class. Statistically, they were part of the peasant class. And they were trained. They had continuous training, actually. So they were serving the people, uh, but, you know, they were paid as agricultural workers and they were getting extra education. And uh, I, I think they were just, you know, they were phenomena unto themselves apart from whatever vision we give them here. And, and to be fair, mm -hmm. Mao's government really heavily promoted this romantic vision of them and often had, you know, political posters of particularly of young women wielding their one silver needle and a bunch of herbs, promoted it to the Western world in a big, big way. So it's not surprising that everybody got these different ideas of what the barefoot doctors were. I was so impressed by the um, bibliography in your book and really very widespread and, uh, you know, different historical traditions went into the process of you writing this book. Which different historical traditions are you thinking of in particular? Well, I, uh, so definitely from the Chinese perspective, um, you know, from the U.S. perspective, from, from Abana perspective. And, and so, you know, you weave together these various elements and it's all based on, other evidence. And so I was really pleased to see the list of books, you know, to for those of us who want to read more about what you are writing, there's sources for us. Yes, I'm a great as reader. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> well, as you're talking, 
Yeah, that's wonderful to be a great reader. Well, I was going to say a great reader of, um, as, of footnotes, <laughs> of endnotes. <laughs> no, I didn't me mean a great too. reader. A great reader of endnotes. I, <laughs> I, I often just go through the notes and read those separately. Right. I don't do that with every book, but some books I'm meticulous about because I learn a lot. As you're going around and talking about your book, what kind of responses are you getting from acupuncture students and community and interested people? Oh, yeah. It's really interesting because it sort of depends where they are, but I, I, I learn new things. And I always say to people, I, I'd really like to know about your experiences because I know one of the legacies of revolutionary acupuncture is that there's a lot of, well, there's what I call social justice acupuncture organizations like AWB, Acupuncturists Without Borders, and uh, you know organizations that are using acupuncture in, in a way to promote social justice and heal trauma. But there's also a lot of individuals who are out there doing this in their own way. And so I hear from people. And I, I had recently mm -hmm. given a, a webinar and with people from all over Europe and outside the United States. And I heard back from someone in Montreal. And they were telling me about this battle they're still having, that they're not able to do community acupuncture there because the organization that regulates them won't allow it and how they're having this ongoing battle, which kind of goes back to the battle the Wexus were having way back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I hear about these kinds of struggles that people are still having. I gave a talk with a group in England of, they call it multi-bed acupuncture here. And most of the, there was one woman in the conference who is black and her father was a black Panther in the UK. And so she knew some of the history, but most of the other people said, oh, I never heard about any of this. So, whereas when I speak to Americans, there's a lot of people who, who, who will have heard something about it. One thing I've been learning about is, is just other, how other people are carrying on in their own way, their sort of radical or revolutionary ideals, and also some of the struggles that they're having to do that. And in England, in the multi-bed acupuncture, they're having their own struggles, partly because of the financial ways of getting it done. I, overall, I would say people are very, have been responding that they're really grateful that this history is being told. They're grateful to learn more about it. And they're grateful that, that it's being spoken about and written about. And I think my own sense, when I was still at the PCHS, the Pacific College, again, after the murder of George Floyd, there was a, a real outcry from students. We want to know more. You know, We want things to be different here. We want acupuncture in America to be a more inclusive profession. You know, we, we want it to include people of color and the particular ways that, that acupuncture and Chinese medicine may apply to them and also the contributions that they've made to it. And so I think, and at the same time, it's funny because a lot of colleges like Pacific College is one, but I know a lot of others also have these offsite clinics that are mainly for really underserved populations. And it's a great thing the colleges do in a lot of ways. It benefits the students, it benefits the populations, it benefits the college and that they have ties with the community. But many of those closed because of COVID. 
And I don't know to what extent they're opening up again, because it just wasn't possible to keep them COVID safe. And because they're not really profitable for the colleges, I don't know what efforts have been made to, to see that those things are opened up again. But I think from within acupuncture education, now is a time that change can be made. And it remains to be seen, will it, or will this be an example of, well, there was a little kerfuffle <laughs> at this time, and then people sort of lapse back into the way they used to do things. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP-certified facilities, and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free drop ship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. Well, it is certainly very timely from events that are going on around us, not only in the U.S., but internationally. And I think the, you know, the multiple strands of sentiment about acupuncture and about using it for community and for to promote justice, you, you did a really thorough job of illuminating that. And I think that's so important. In, in talking with a number of younger public health students, even folks who aren't acupuncture specific, they're not studying that, but they are fascinated by this. You know, they have not been aware of this at all, even though, you know, there are some folks walking around like myself who were alive for some of this and did experience it. But to bring it together in the way that you have, I think is really critical. And again, you know, history repeats itself. And if we fail to learn the lessons of the past, that amnesia will affect our future. So by sometimes by looking backward, we can actually fortify what we need to do to keep building the profession. And I certainly appreciated your inclusion of other organizations, certainly POCA, Acupuncturists Without Borders, the National Acupuncture Detox Association. And since here in Boston, I used to work with the AIDS Care Project, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. My colleagues who were involved with that, we were really thrilled to see the little tip of your hat to, to the work that we did. So we are very grateful for that. Um, next steps with the book. 
or next steps with your own scholarship? Yeah, I mean, next steps with the book, I I have to say with books, it's sort of like you spend all this time creating it, researching it, writing it, then you send it out there and you don't know, is it just, it's, it's just going to land in space, you know, go out into the, as a piece of space chunk, or is it going to land with a thud somewhere? Are people going to pick it up and read it? It's very hard to know. I'm not a great social media person. So I don't have a hundred thousand Twitter followers. I think I have 12, uh, you know, that, that are coming to me saying, ah, yes, I, I'm not what you would call an influencer. So it's hard to know, but I, I have had some good feedback about it and, you know, from surprising quarters sometimes. And so I do hope people will read. It. And I guess that's in terms of the book, I, I'm, I'm giving some talks, I'm doing some podcasts and I, you just hope that people will read the book. But in terms of next step of my scholarship, I know oh, there's all kinds of, I was very interested actually, and I don't know if I'll do further work on this or not, but the AIDS care project and just the work that's been done with acupuncture and HIV AIDS, because that's another sort of branch. And interestingly, some of the people who keep people at BANA, for instance, and first world acupuncture have become very involved in working with HIV AIDS mm. patients since then. And one of the clinics, when the, when the sort of free clinics, offsite clinics began at Pacific College, uh, they also set up one for HIV AIDS. And so I think that's another sort of overlooked aspect that there've been these wonderful organizations when those people were just sort of anathema to society and, and we're going out there and embracing them. But what I'm working on mm. right now is... Uh, a writing project. It's not going to be a full-length book. It will be more like a booklet, but it's a another history of free local thing, the Third Avenue Charitable Organization, also known as TACO. All these great acronyms, POCA TACO, affiliated with the First Lutheran Church in San Diego. And they had their own kind of free clinic movement. They still do. It's as ongoing. And I knew about them because they were affiliated with the Pacific College and also with UC San Diego Medical School, and they had they have a free dental clinic, a free medical clinic, a free legal clinic, and they had this free acupuncture clinic for many many years. It closed down during COVID, and it hasn't opened up since. But but all of these programs were really set up uh, to help the homeless population, and they have many other uh, ways that they help the homeless. They have free lots of free meals, which they've been able to keep going during the entire COVID era. They had something called Simon's Walk, which was uh, pairing volunteers with people who don't have a home and have been diagnosed with a terminal illness to just accompany them through their final journey, however long that is. And many other ways. And again, they had a lot of pushback from the city and, and different ways. And it's another to me, just beautiful, inspiring example of how a small organization has partnered with the community to help others in their community that no one else was helping and just made it happen with few resources. So it's another sort of barefoot doctor-ish thing, I guess. And it always, I was a you know, to give you a bit of background, I was a student intern at that clinic when I was an acupuncture student. And then I was a volunteer after I graduated at the clinic. And then I did my doctoral research there. 
on the benefits of acupuncture for low-income older adults with multimorbidity. And then I finally was the clinic supervisor there. So I have, and the whole time, I just have very, very fond memories of the place. It's a wonderful place. And it, it's, you know, it's pretty rare in life that you feel inspired <laughs> by the mm. way society is, by the way other people are. You know, so often we spend our times critiquing it, critiquing it. There's a lot to critique raging against it, being angry about stuff. But sometimes there's stuff that you can just feel really good about that people are doing to help one another. I don't mean, you know, buying stuff from online, but <laughs> ways that human <laughs> beings treat each other that you can find inspiring. And so maybe this is kind of carrying on from the, the revolutionary acupuncture. I didn't think of it that way. I can, I can appreciate that. I have a couple more questions. You're very yeah. um, specifically focused um, and it directly flows from what you just said. How can people get copies of your book? Well, it is available from all your major booksellers. So and I know a lot of people are not keen on using Amazon. So while it is available on Amazon, it's available through a whole bunch of other, you know, all your other, it's available as an ebook or a print copy. Um, I wanted to make it fairly low priced. So it's under 20 bucks for the paperback and it's under $10 for the ebook. Also, a lot of people like to order through their local bookseller to benefit the local bookseller. And, you know, that contributes also to the, you know, smaller independent booksellers. So mm -hmm. I like that way of doing it, but I've, I've seen it advertised. It's a, some a surprising number of uh, local booksellers, independent booksellers, as well as the big ones. So I would say the best way to find it is just Google it and it will pop up. Yeah. There's a, a site called Indie Books, I-N-D-I-E dot books. Yeah. that supports local booksellers, but it's kind of a centralized uh, ether solution to it. And is there a way that folks who are, have been listening to this interview today where they can follow what you're doing and where you'll be talking or where you'll be having some webinars? I have to say, not really, no. That This is a failing of myself. As I said, I'm not a great social media person. I do have a Twitter handle, but I don't post on it very much. Like, you know, the, la the last webinar I did, I didn't post anything about it. The organizers did. They posted on Facebook and other places. But I'll, I'll try to start putting stuff on my Twitter handle page, whatever <laughs> it's called, about what I'm doing now. I, I'm a serious um, Twitter person. And I do something called public health haiku. And I would be happy to, uh, you know. You're going to write a haiku about it? The book. I would write a haiku about it. Yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> you know, I've been writing a haiku every day for the last about three weeks. <laughs> Not about this, but, um, <laughs> but I find it very refreshing. But I don't post those anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you'll consider it. Being a public transportation commuter, I'm finding that, okay, I'm on the bus, I'm on the subway, perfect for writing three little lines and 17 syllables. Yeah, and you're probably inspired. So it's easy to do. Yeah. Well, this is, is anything else you would like to say about the book before we wrap up today? 
Well, I would like to state its name. I'm not sure we stated the whole book's name, and I told people Google it, and maybe they're thinking, I don't know what to Google. So the book's name is <laughs> Acupuncture as Revolution, Suffering, Liberation, and Love, and it's published by Brevis Press in London. And if you Google that, it will come up. And if you ask your independent bookstore, because I know a lot of people have done this, they will be happy to supply it to you, no doubt. So I'm, I'm all for keeping those little bookstores alive. Because, Well, I, th I think your book is such um, an excellent contribution to the discussion that we're having just in general about where is this field going and what kinds of you know, legacy are we drawing on and also leaving for future generations of acupuncturists. So it puts us in this time perspective of, you know, once again, learning from the past and trying to edify or shine some light on the future. So I, I think you have really um, put in a lot of thoughtful consideration into telling this story that I think is really important. It certainly reflects some of my initial reasons for going to acupuncture school. And I think it will resonate even if people, you know, are from a different generation, just to know where some of these things come from and uh, to recognize the contributions today of people who are acupuncturists who may be doing hybrid kinds of clinics or POCA, of course, acupuncturists without borders, people who have, you know, taken these sentiments and transformed them into liberationist treatment philosophies. So personally, I thank you a lot for your contributions to that. Well, thank you. I thank you a lot as well. This has been wonderful to speak with you, and I really appreciate the opportunity. I hope you've enjoyed this grassroots revolutionary look at acupuncture. It's so amazing to me how acupuncture has wound its way through time, culture, and circumstance, and has been able to help and relieve the suffering of so many over these thousands of years. We'll have other Community Voices episodes that trip out from time to time for you, members of the podcast. As always, thank you for your support of Geological you make it possible for all of us to have access to conversations like this. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.